Hello, and welcome to Let's Just Talk. I'm your host, Hami. Joining us today is Dr. Stephanie Seville, the co-director of the Cost of War Project at Brown University, to discuss the rise of military coups across the West African Sahel region. Dr. Seville, welcome to Let's Just Talk. Thanks so much for having me here. Of course. I was going to begin today's conversation by talking about the recent coup in Niger. But just this morning, the Central African country of Gabon just had their, uh, also had a military coup uh, where they dissolve all institutions of the government and claim that the newly elected president, I mean, he's not newly elected because he was president before this, who just won the third term, okay. is not a legitimate president. Um, but I'm going to go back to, I'm going to, I want to begin to this conversation with Niger. Uh, where uh, the democratically elected president, democratically, uh, Mohamed Bazoum was overthrown and detained by his own presidential guards, uh, along with many of his top political allies um, being arrested. And this comes after a spree of other military coups across the region. We have uh, namely Mali, Bamako, Guinea, Conakry, Burkina Faso, uh, Chad, Jemena, and now Gabon, um, making this, if successful, the eighth or ninth uh, coup in the region. So really uh, living up to its name as the coup belt of the world. At this point it is, yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, knowing all of this, I want to hear your take on what is happening in the region. Um, and I want to touch on some historical and contemporary factors that are contributing to these coups in the region. Yeah. Um, well, it's... Uh, you know, it's a very, I mean, why is it happening? First of all, I think one of the major factors is that um, this, especially the young generation in this region, is coming to terms with what it means to have been colonized. Um, and it's, you know, it's an educated generation, Uh although there, there are many people still who lack access to education, but there are many more university students and people who've learned about um, the history of what their countries have gone through. Right. And there's a lot of rage, you know? So I was in Niger and I, I pronounce it Niger because it's um, the, the French pronunciation. Yeah. Um, that's the colonial language in, in Niger. Um, so they, I spoke with a group of university students who were talking about how there's been, you know, um, like this, the kind of spate of terror attacks um, at their country's borders. And they were talking about their own peaceful pro protests in the streets of Niamey. And they were saying, like, we are young people. We're not that different from the young people who are in these militant, Islamist militant groups. Right. Like, we're, we're all kind of, oh, did I freeze? We're all, um, can you hear me? Okay. Um, we're all just like tr trying to do the same thing, which is really fight against injustice and, mm -hmm. um, and really say that we deserve better and we deserve to have, um, state services and we deserve to have jobs. And there are so many global systems that are keeping us repressed. Mm -hmm. um, and so um, they were equating this kind of um, militant movement and these terror attacks that we've been seeing across um, the West Africa region, at least, um, with this really just this kind of absolutely 
you know, I, I think of the region as just kind of roiling with this anti-colonial sentiment and, and just this reverberation. So what happens with the military coups is, I mean, it's very clear that who benefits from these coups, it's the leaders of the coups, right? There's no kind of trickle-down effect so far that, that anyone has been able to see, although perhaps you can speak, uh, I don't know the situation of Guinea, um, and maybe it's different there. But for the most part, these are the people who are profiting. Um, and yet they're able to mobilize popular sentiment because the administrations that were in power are seen as allied with the former colonial power, in this case um, of Niger, uh, the French. And so there's so much hatred of France that people are willing to kind of like get behind whatever change of the status quo that that promises a different a different path, right? So um, I think that's a that's kind of where we see some of the popular sentiment. It's where certainly. In Niger, there's been a lot of press around, you know, people waving Russian flags. It's not necessarily because there's some kind of allegiance with Russia. It's more because the people are ready to do whatever it takes to kind of stick it to France, you know. Um, and also, like, uh, I want to touch on the fact that uh, these sentiments towards France are not unfounded, right? Um, no. For generations, France has been taking advantage of the resources of these countries. Uh, in Niger, France controls ultimately almost all of the uranium uh, that's in the country. And, you know, uh, they have built extractive institutions in these countries that are designed Absolutely. to take resources from them and take it to France. Um, uh, and so it's global capitalism, it's right. neo-colonialism in that sense. And it's also, you know, a big thing is the kind of reverberating um, uh, power structures. Right. So the French, like they they ruled um, the peoples of West Africa in a certain way, such that they kind of pitted different ethnic groups against each other. And they put certain groups in power, like in control of government, and others became very marginalized because they were not like kind of used by the French through, you know, their system of indirect rule. So, um, so that the kind of legacies of a lot of the tensions and political rivalries between different people, between different groups, um, it's basically all messed up <laughs> because right. of the role that France played in during the colonial period. Exactly. And even, um, like I uh, like even beyond like the the Russian flags that you see, those also for me can be explained in the sense that right now the relationship that French has with their former colonies is very much exploitative. Um, not only in Niger but in Guinea, the bauxite mines are owned by foreigners. Um, the cocoa plants across you know the Ivory Coast. Uh, every sort of natural resource that you could think of is owned primarily by foreigners. And yeah. Local, Although, yeah, right, go so. ahead. I mean, what's, it, it's changing, right? So, right. so it used to be that France had kind of this stranglehold on the regional economies of its right. former colonies. That has actually changed in recent years. And, you know, I think that the Chinese have made big, big inroads in a lot of there's they've got gotten a lot of concessions to mines and natural resources and other countries have kind of come in to the picture and France right. has like there's a diminishing share, um, but certainly not in the popular imagination. Right. And I think that's also where the new sentiments and frustration about like the nature of relationship with 
former colonial powers either have to change or they have to leave. Because now some of the countries have started seeing that um, historically France had, there is a belief that historically France has prevented them from building ties with other countries or when they have leaders that are seen as puppets of former colonial powers, those leaders prevent them from building ties. But mm -hmm. with new ties being built by China and Turkey and you know other Asian countries coming in and investing in the countries and you know diversifying some of the resources that are in the country, um, there is a sense that if we get rid of these relations, um, we are going to see some form of benefits from the new form of relations being built. Now, that rest to be, we, we, we have to wait to see whether that's true or not, because mm -hmm. we still don't know what the ultimate, because everybody is a self-interested, rational self-interested person okay. in yeah. the party. Um, and then I want, I want you to touch a little bit on the jihadist, um, because I was uh, reading where this paper that was talking about the relationship, the, the popular sentiments for Russia is that Russia has been giving weapons to some of uh, the, the countries or selling weapons, heavy machinery weapons to some of the countries in the region. Um, whereas France has been there with 1500 uh, troops. Uh, the US military has a base in Niger and AFRICOM and other countries, but they haven't been seeing much progress uh, in sort of like uh, safeguarding the region and fighting the jihadists. Uh, so since Russia has been able to provide them with that support, uh, there's this growing, this leaning towards Russian influence and so on. Uh, what yeah, that? well, that, I mean, first of all, I think that that's misleading what you just said, because mm. actually, um, so I'll go back and explain kind of like how this conflict has kind of really started up and, and where all these Islamist you know, terror attacks are coming from. Um, but I, but I do want to respond to the fact that, you know, Russia may be providing certain kinds of weapons to countries in the region. Um, but the U S has provided far more and, and, you know, in, in terms like of scale of, you know, equipment and funding, the U S is, you know, in Niger alone since 2012, the U S has spent 500, million dollars in what the what the US government calls security assistance which is not really assistance um in in, in fighting the problem but um but that's what that's what the official category is called um so yeah so so there's uh, the, and and the french have been very active in um in training providing on the ground troops um uh you know doing uh funding as well as have many other players right so when i speak when i spoke to um members of the military in burkina faso niger some of the other countries they're very clear that they kind of get what they want to from each of the different foreign powers, right? So they're saying, oh, the Chinese, you know, like the, the, it's like those, they send, you know, someone joked like, oh, he, they sent like a Google or Amazon catalog of all the weapons you can get. And then you can just pick out what you want and it's like super cheap. And, but then they break like the bulletproof vest, don't even block any bullets, you know? So that was kind of a, and, and they, and so they, they kind of were joking around and like stereotyping each of the foreign players for like what they had to offer in terms of this kind of war on terror fight, you know? So the U, but the U, what, what they said was that the US in terms of scale of funding was by far far and above like any any other foreign player was US funding. Um, so basically, 
what's happened um, in the region. So in 2011, um, NATO ousted Gaddafi, Colonel Gaddafi, who was the leader of Libya. Gaddafi had a bunch of mercenaries working for him. And when he was ousted, there was all these like weapons stores and fighters kind of roaming about in the desert. And and this is a region that I've learned is, a, you know, I'm th- I'm talking about the Sahel and the Sahara region. So um, the Sahel is this kind of band of like more desert type scrub brush uh, topography and the Sahara, of course, is, um, you know, the, the actual like fine sand desert, right? The borders are between the countries, Libya, Algeria, Niger, Mali, they're very porous because it's just, you know, kilometers upon kilometers of open desert. Um, so so the, the groups that are in these regions are kind of going in between countries very easily. Um, and at the time, right after um, Gaddafi was ousted, uh, the there was a rebel movement in Mali, a separatist movement, which still exists, Azawad. Um, and the separatists joined together with some of these mercenaries who were coming from Libya, who had all these guns. And, and at the same time, some of the groups like the Islamic State and Al-Qaeda um, from the Middle East started sending some fighters into this kind of like increasingly chaotic mix. And the Islamist groups kind of quickly gained the upper hand over the separatist movements um, and started taking territory in northern Mali in 2012-2013. And the French at the time and, you know, the West were concerned that this would kind of spill, this conflict would spill over into the broader region, as indeed it has. Um, and, and the French launched Operation Bahkan, which was a military operation to kind of stem the tide of the conflict. Um, the U.S. was re- has been really involved. Um, there was a U.N. mission in Mali, a peacekeeping mission that um, recently got kicked out by the military government. So there were, you know, that there were lots of kind of Western actors kind of involved in trying to stop. And what we've seen in the past five years or so is that Mali, Burkina Faso, Niger have just kind of suffered increasing amounts of, of militant, Islamist militant attacks. And what they do is they attack the, they attack, um, mostly like government, um, forces, but also civilians, like there's a good bit of kind of economic piracy that's going on. So they, people are claiming the mantle of these Islamist groups, but then in practice, what they're actually doing is going in and stealing people's cattle and other kinds of livelihood sources. And, um, there's a lot of smuggling of, um, you know, drugs and, and other kinds of goods, um, that's involved. So it's a, it's a kind of, uh, a lot of people join the, the militant groups out of economic necessity, as well as, um, the majority join because of kind of the need to retaliate. Increasingly, the government forces crack down on a particular ethnic group, calling them terrorists. The, the Fulani or Pul group, um, which is a group of herders. Are you, a member of, yeah right they've practiced islam for um centuries as you know 
and they are um, discriminated against across the by governments across the region. Um, and you know, and then the government cracks down on the Fulani, and then the Fulani. Some people are joining the militant groups to retaliate against the government, so it becomes a cycle. And what I've shown in my work is that the U.S. by creating this kind of war on terror narrative and sending in the equipment and the funding and the training to kind of prop up that narrative has really contributed to intensifying this cycle of blowback. The U.S. is not like a major player in this region, but it has really imported this kind of, what do you do when there's a terror attack? Oh, you fight it with the wars if there were an enemy, you know, and that comes with its own repercussions. There are many other ways of dealing with terror attacks. You could treat it as a criminal justice problem, which, you know, that has its own, policing has its own problems, but still it's a very different way of looking at the situation. You could you could think about long term solutions. Um, this is you know these are these are movements also that are very much at the fundamental kind of driving level are rooted in structural problems of poverty, people you know food insecurity, basically like people not having enough to to eat, um, and you know people's frustration with government corruption. Climate change is a factor and the fact that there's changing patterns of land use and desertification. This is one of the regions that's gotten hit hardest by climate change. So herders and farmers are coming into conflict um, more and more. So there's all these structural. There's big so many layers issues. to unpack that it's like it's going to take more than one conversation to unpack all that. Absolutely. And then the government forces are going in and they're treating it as like, oh, this is a war on the bad guy, on the state enemies, on the bad, right. so quote unquote bad guys. And that's just making the whole thing worse. Right. And then um, you just recently published an article where you mentioned that at least five of the uh, coopsters have been trained by the U.S. military. Could you say a little bit more about that article and uh, how should us in the West, why should we care about what's happening down there? Um, what yeah. stake do we have in this? Right. Well, it, that actually wasn't my article. Some some other people have shown that the the people, but it's it's a trend across the region, all across West Africa, mm. to a T. Every country that's had a coup, there's been people who've been trained by the U.S. military mm. who are leading the coup, um, and partly, I think. The reason is that the U.S. trains so many of the top military leaders in all of these countries in the name of counterterrorism. So that's, you know, just kind of one reason is just scale. The other is that um, there was a UNDP study that showed that the countries that are more likely to have an ongoing pattern of, of recurring right. coups are countries where there's been an, um, a, a history of military right. coups. Um, Niger, for Niger, this is the fifth military coup since uh, independence in the 1960s, right? So this, this is, this is a, you know, uh, there's a trend right. historically and countries that have an over-involvement of the military in political life. There's an, mm -hmm. there's an imbalance, a kind of skewed over, over importance that the military has in determining political outcomes. Um, mm -hmm. And that is something that the U.S. contributes to perpetuating mm -hmm. by funneling all of these hundreds of millions of dollars. I always say it's like a small, it's like a drop in the bucket. The, the Pentagon budget in, is um, over $700 billion a year. The U.S. sends $500 million to a country like Niger. That's nothing for the Pentagon. Nothing. For Niger, it's a lot. So it's a, it's a, you know, it's a, it's an imbalance. 
Right. And uh, before we move on, I want to give uh, credit to the right scholars that wrote the article or that at least five of the people yeah. um, have been trained by the U.S. military. It was by the Intercept and you commented. That's right. Yeah, that's right. OK, um, so shout out to those scholars that wrote that um, university student here, big on plagiarism. But uh, <laughs> move, move, moving on uh, from that, uh, another phenomenon that I wanted you to comment on was the I was in Guinea uh, post the when Mamadou Doumbouya uh, ousted Alpha Conde, the, the the president that was there before the coup, uh, the recent coup in Guinea. And what I so usually when coups happen, because Guinea like Niger has a history of coups happening throughout its history, but that has always been marked by violence and um, ethnic conflict. Uh, however, this time around, it was marked by celebration in the streets. Yeah. And in Niger, it was also marked by celebration in some areas. Uh, Gabon, we also see in some areas there's celebration. Um, but the the and in Mali, uh, there were videos of like uh, people in front of the French embassy um, just telling them to leave. And in Niger, the same thing. In Burkina Faso, they're even more nationalist than like the rest of. The region, I would argue. Uh, so I want to get your take on this because uh, I haven't been seeing it highlighted in a lot of the Western media. That's being yeah. um, that, like the celebration that's coming from like the region about like uh, all the coups, which is which sort of leaves us wondering: Is this the future of the region? Yeah. If so, if so, like a lot of the leaders in the region should be panicking right now. Right. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think that there is a tendency in the U.S. to assume that democracy and the U.S. way is the good way and other kinds of government are the wrong way. You know, there's the, the very much this is very much the discourse. And yet when you see the track record of authoritarian governments in Africa and elsewhere, um, you see systems that work that may work well for some people, especially people with, you know, who are more elite and that really oppresses and represses and kills and, you know, abuses the human rights and civil rights of the people who are at the bottom of the ladder. Um, so when I was doing my research in Niger, um, you know, people were just saying how, what a great job Niger was doing. It was so stable. I mean, that's one of the ironies is, as you were mentioning earlier, like the, the claim was that, oh, the government's not doing good enough job fighting this, you know, jihadist insurgency. And so the military has to step in, run the government and do it better. Right. But at the time, I mean, Niger is doing far better than its neighbors. Um, and people are saying, oh, you know, such a great do government's doing such a great job promoting peace. Blah, blah, blah. And then I started trying to, I was thinking to myself, okay, well, I can't just take the word of the people who are in power. Like I need to kind of seek out what is the story? Like, how does the story work? If you are a Fulani person, if you are a um, black Tuareg person, for example, because there's one nomadic 
another nomadic group that had uh, the former slaves of this ethnic group are now incorporated. They're called Tuaregs, but they were they were slaves back in the day, and so they're the Black Tuareg. They are also you know subjects of a lot of discrimination um, and prejudice. And so I started seeking out these kinds of people, like, what's your version of what's going on? And um, they were talking about being indiscriminately shot at by the army for riding a motorcycle because there were these zones of emergency where um, riding a motorcycle is prohibited. Well, what if you're like, you know, needing a hospital and that's your only mode of transportation, you know, as it is in a lot of these places, right? So, um, or for example, um, fishing was prohibited in one of the lake regions of Niger. So all of a sudden people couldn't earn a living and couldn't have, you know, a food source. Um, people were being jailed if they, for activism and journalism. There's, you know, free speech was like non-existent, right? So th this is all in the context of a supposed democracy with authoritarian leanings that, by the way, the U.S. overlooked um, to, to call it such a great stable security partner, right? But that's what happens in, in dictatorships. And that's what happens in, you know, when there's a military led government, because there's no need to be accountable to any, any kind of notion of human rights, right? So I think we, you know, I, I, and, and so why the popular support? I mean, that's just, I think, a fascinating, question to investigate. Um, it's something, it's akin to to what I've found in, in a totally different research project in Brazil, where, you know, the, the kind of like poor people, Black people who are living in favelas, the poor neighborhoods are all about, you know, hardcore policing and like heavy handed policing, right? Sometimes, not, not everyone, obviously, that's a, that's a huge generalization. But like, there is this surprising sentiment where like, what, you know, what, why would you ever support from, right? And I, I kind of see this support for military governments in this uh, West African region in a similar light as, as, as it's kind of puzzling, right? Like, you, you see the support for these regimes, amongst the very people who are probably most likely to suffer from the crackdown is the kind of populism, right? Um, and um, and I think I think people are still trying to like unpack that and understand it. Um, personally, you know, as an anthropologist, I I often see when I talk to people um, around the world a kind of a nostalgia for uh, a rosy, but like the past through rosy colored glasses kind of thing, where like. Basically, anything is better than the current state in which you're absolutely suffering from massive injustice, right? So anything looks looks kind of better. And I think, like, also, uh, we can't ignore, like, historical precedents of, like, uh, the, the, the French or foreign powers sort of have, like, almost next to zero legitimacy in those countries to try to be, like, listen, you want democracy, you don't want uh, a military rule, you're not going to benefit from this. People won't listen because they have historical precedents of Patrice Lumumba and Thomas Sankara and Kwame Nkrumah and all their leaders who they saw as like the mantles of freedom and liberty uh, being murdered by the West. So yeah. then it's like you can't come back generations later and try to preach and teach and, you know, uh, try to bring democracy when you thwarted it in the beginning. Absolutely. Um, and so 
you know, that leads me to my next question. Um, we know that the people who benefit most are the people in power, the people in search of power. Um, nonetheless, this phenomenon is happening. It is the coup belt of the world. What is the long-term implications of this for uh, regular people on the ground, yeah. um, the people that you interviewed and so on? And to add to that, since we're nearing the end, um, threats of inter military intervention by ECOWAS, uh, can you give us your insights on that as well? Yeah. No, I think that's the most important question to ask because who who suffers from this sort of stuff? Like who suffers from war and conflict and uh, authoritarianism? It's it's kind of like the everyday people, everyday citizens are the ones who suffer most. Um, I met a community of displaced people in Burkina Faso. I, I you know I met a lot of displaced people. One community that um, I got to know a little bit was, you know, they were living in a abandoned school building on the outskirts of Ouagadougou, the capital. They only ate once a day. This was mostly women, some and children, a few men, um, older men, and they uh, they only ate once a day due to the charity of the surrounding villages, who already were people who kind of face food insecurity. So it was the generosity of of people who don't have enough to eat to begin with. It might be millet. It might be rice if they were lucky. Um, it was nothing else. So uh, there was a little boy who they had taken to the doctor because he had malaria. They managed to kind of like scramble around, collect enough money for the doctor's fee. But by the time he got, they got him to the doctor for malaria, which is a very common illness, he was, too, it was too late. He, he was so anemic. So like he has so few nutrients from um, the food de deprivation that he died of, of malaria and which is a very treatable disease if you catch it on time and you're not malnourished. Um, so, you know, that story really stays with me because it shows the reverberating consequences of of war, it's not necessarily that people die in violence. The the you know four times as many people on average die of the reverberating effects, um, like not having enough to eat, not having access to healthcare, um, in the you know environmental causes, right? So it's really it's really awful and sad, um, and you know the the thought of ECOWAS. So ECOWAS is the, uh, ec what is it? Economic community, Economic community of West African countries. Of West African states, right? So um, they've threatened to intervene militarily to reinstate President Bazoum to power uh, in Niger if the junta doesn't do so, which the junta does not seem like it's going to. Um, and, you know, people have kind of said, oh, this is an empty threat. They're not doing anything. If they don't do anything, though, it, you know, it lays the groundwork for any other country in the region to have a coup, as we saw in Gabon, right? This, like, their people are empowered because they know that nothing's going to happen if they do. Um, I mean, that's an over, that's a, generalization as well because there's sanctions and you know in Niger actually people don't have electricity and water and there's all kinds of sanctions by ECOWAS that's really affecting people and think about how it affects the kind of most marginalized as well you know um so uh but then you know from a different perspective I mean I'm someone who sees 
who studies the trauma and the the suffering caused by war, right? And so when I look at the possibility of an ECOWAS military intervention in Niger, what I see is a situation in which there's a war that's going to start because, you know, Burkina Faso and Mali have said that they're, they would support Niger militarily if ECOWAS um, invades. And so it's, it would be absolutely devastating. I, I mean, I just, I just can't even begin to fathom the horrors of that in a region that's already where people are already yeah. suffering so much. And I think too often we tend to romanticize and glamorize the idea of like liberators, freedom fighters, the hell with neocolonialism, the hell with the French, the hell with, you know, like uh, power structures that are not serving us. So, you know, let's engage in this conflict, um, forgetting that too often it is the people at the top who are benefiting from the conflict and it is at the people at the bottom who are dying from it. Um, it is the people at the bottom who are sending their kids to fight in these wars. Yeah, um, the people who have nothing to to to, to eat, who are on the streets, uh, protesting and speaking up. So either way, no matter how you look at it, um, they're clear losers in the situation, yeah, and absolutely. it is not the ones um, at the top of it. So we need to recognize that as well, while yeah. also holding these power structures accountable in the process. Um, yeah. But yeah, uh, while we come to the end, uh, I wanted to get uh, your like one last take about uh, how you think these events are going to unfold or how you hope they'll unfold. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we hope to keep these conversations going because uh, clearly with what we've seen this morning with Gabon, this is not the end of the story. Uh, there is so much more to come. Um, yeah, yeah it's really it's really, um, really just the prospects don't look good. And and that's, um, it's just, I hate to think about that, but it's true. Um, you know, when it comes to what I hope for, I think that there, I mean, one of the amazing things about uh, my visit to Niger in January was that I saw people from the very small local neighborhood level all the way up to someone who was working with the federal government with kind of grassroots or like models of peace building and conflict resolution that made so much sense in the local context and seemed to be making a difference at the local level, you know? And so people were in Burkina Faso, there's been examples of municipal governments negotiating ceasefires with some of the Islamist militant groups um, because they, uh, they, and it actually worked. Um, So, you know, it's, it's a, uh, it's something that I think, with the narrative of a war on terror, like the like we have to fight jihadists with a war. The alternative is to say, well, what are the local solutions? Like, what are people saying that are gonna that actually could bring peace? You know, and support those. Um, I I was speaking to someone who um, used to work in the government in Niger, and he was saying to me, you know, at this point. Bazoum is is you know he would ha- have no support no legitimacy even if they he were to be reinstated into in, into president the presidency so at this point what do we to promote peace um he he had all kinds of ideas like let's tell the junta to like have an open election soon and and let Bazoum run and then you know and so he was he kind of had all these these ideas that I could 
I could totally see like this is someone who knows all the ins and outs of all the different kind of political rivalries and ethnic tensions. And like, you know, he was kind of proposing a path forward. And I was like, this is the person who should be figuring out what to do, you know, not anyone from the outside. And I think that the, the, what foreign powers can do is really support those kinds of local uh, ideas by people who know what they're talking about. Uh, Dr. Savelle, it's been great having you on Let's Just Talk, and we hope to continue doing this work with you and continue the conversation. Yeah, thank you so much. We really appreciate your time. Yeah, great to talk to you.